Don't care, baby. You look like a banana. So listen to the Uncut Jones podcast. <laughs> we can normally talk about movies nobody else wants to talk about. This is episode number, I think it's 120. And my name yes. is Jakob. Yes. My name is Jakob, by the way. Yeah. <laughs> and my name's Randy, man. Uh, hi, Randy, man. <laughs> uh, today, we're not alone. We're not all by, uh, by our lonesome. We're also joined by a very special guest. Returning voice is with us. Ian Schultz is in the house, a.k.a. Psychotronic Cinema, I suppose, on Twitter as well. So how are you doing, Ian? How are you um, doing? Okay. You're short, Mr. Short and Sweet is back in the house. Uh, right, okay. So today we're um, talking Bottle Rocket because we're kind of sort of opening our, um, what we'll call it, May retrospective of 90s heist films. <laughs> I think that's kind of the uh, the, the deal for, for the month because why not? You should, you, should, um, you, should have done, you should have done Trespass, the Walter Hill one. That's a good one. You know, there's... There's a few others we could have. There's had. there's a bunch of those. Like like I was thinking to myself, like we could have done just done like '90s heist movies with female leads, like Entrapment, The Real McCoy. There's like there's whole crap ton of them. <laughs> but I'm yeah, I'm, but I'm with you on the trespass. It's just there's only so many Fridays in a month. Next year, <laughs> we'll, we'll we'll find a reason to do trespass. Is is what I'm saying. Well, do like a Walter Hill retrospective or something. There's this. Loads of good stuff there. It's actually a good shout. There's you know, one one day. There's that big this... bot set coming out from um, Imprint in Australia soon of a lot. Oh wow! What's in the box set? Uh, Driver, Hard Times, Long Riders. Uh, I think Extreme Prejudice. Um, Johnny Handsome, and something else. I think. We were talking about uh, at some point ago, some time ago, I think, about doing Extreme Prejudice, but I'm not sure now. That's that's a good one. So yeah, there's there's a, there's a I don't know there's there's a way to kind of do Walter Hill. It's just a question of doing it. Anyway, but we're not doing Trespass this month. We're doing we're starting with Bottle Rocket and there's other films as well. Meanwhile, uh. Just break out your bulletin boards, by the way. Oh, actually, I should probably say before we start anyway, because like recently, because like recording this one week after the Rocketeer episode went live, so I just I wanted to kind of quickly say that now the Rocketeer is our most popular episode ever. <laughs> yeah. so, cool. Thanks, uh, Jackson. That's just all, all the people who find Jennifer Connelly very hot in that film. Yeah. <laughs> Delicious. <laughs> <laughs> she was dangerously young in that, anyway um, no she, yeah, so she's I'm in her really... 20s she's in her early 20s isn't yeah that? I think she's 22 or something yeah she's totally legal by that point yeah yeah I mean at some at some point in your life you realize 22 is like dangerously young already <laughs> just... <laughs> um, no but just okay so the Rocketeer is live and alive and kicking so thanks very much for listening and then if you're here because of the Rocketeer and Jackson welcome <laughs> and then while you're here as well might as well just say we also have a Patreon which is patreon.com slash and then this month we're doing um, 
a tie-in to this series, which will be Heat, which will land next week from when this episode's released. And that one's going to be, by the way, just 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 so you know, I think that one's going to be released and then kept in on the Patreon for free for a uh, for a period of one month, just as a as a freebie. So get on that. Um, on top of that, in May, in addition to our Soderbergh retrospective that we're kind of just doubling up between the Patreon and the main show, on the main show we did Solaris, and then on the Patreon, just about this past Wednesday, we dropped the entire the Oceans trilogy. So um, listen to us wax poetic about Don Cheadle's accent for three hours and a bit. Mm-hmm. Uh, three three bucks a month is what you need to pay up for uh, to to ha- to have access to this beauty. Um, and on top of that, I think towards the end of the month we're going to be talking about husbands because Jan Cassavetes' retrospective is not going to do itself. Okay, so so there's that. So that's the Patreon, Patreon.com/slash/UncutGemsPod, and uh, you know three bucks a month ain't much, and there's over fifty podcasts in there already. So you know I call it a bang for your buck. And if you don't feel like spending money on on extra content, you just feel like you'd like to kind of just give us money, you're welcome to do that too. So ko-fi.com slash uncutdreamspot is where you can do just that. And then if you don't feel like spending money at all, then you can always leave us a star rating or a review or whatever the hell. Like wherever you listen to to your podcast, just leave us a star rating. As long as it's not a one-star rating, in which case I'll find you. And that's about it. Yeah, so let's just get on with this. Let's just talk ball rocket. How about that? What the hell are you wearing? Yeah. It's a jumpsuit. Clay, look at this guy. He looks like a rodeo clown. <laughs> he looks like a little banana. Where are you from anyway, man? I'm from around here. This guy used to mow our lawn. No shit. Yeah, he was great. Clipping the hedges, sweeping up, mowing the lawn. <laughs> what was the name of your little lawn mowing company? The Lawn Wranglers. <laughs> Let's go. <laughs> Keep up the mowing, Kimasabi. It was, it was, it's landscaping, not just mowing. Oh man, don't listen to that guy. I don't know. Sometimes I, I mean, I'm not always as confident as I look. Did you see what he had on? Yeah, it's pretty cool. Let's just say, Bold Rocket was directed, written, co-written. Uh, by and by Wes Anderson, so it was directed by Wes Anderson, co-written by him, and together with Owen Wilson. Um, and it stars Owen Wilson, Luke Wilson, James Caan, Robert Musgrave, a few other people. <laughs> Let's just keep it simple. One um, of the other Wilsons. The other Wilsons. Yeah, there's <laughs> Andrew Wilson as well. Yeah. Yes. Um, few other all the Wilsons in the world are actually in this movie. So, and actually, is a story about um. Just two friends. One's called Anthony, that's Luke Wilson, and then the other one's Dignan, so that's that's Owen Wilson. Who somehow are not brothers, but so <laughs> somehow they're not brothers, but they're bro. But we're gonna get the to bros in arms. They're bros, is what they are. So one of them, let's just say, he breaks out of a of a mental hospital, even though he doesn't have to, and they together they go on this sort of like Bonnie and Clyde <laughs> sort of badlands sort of trip. <laughs> robbing bookstores and um and other places and they have have it all figured out they're going they have a 75 year plan and then meanwhile anthony they'll they'll spend a night in motel and then anthony falls in love with a with with a housemaid and uh and the story goes from there they meet james khan um 
and then they, yeah, that's it. That's bowler rocket for you. And they shoot bowler rockets, or do they? We're gonna get to it. That's the story. And then the movie is kind of sort of based on uh, a short that Wes Anderson did in in the university. And in fact, they Owen Wilson and Luke Wilson and Wes Anderson they met, they met at the University of Texas, and they re- and then Owen Wilson and Luke Wilson they helped him Wes Anderson make his short. So they started in and they co-wrote it and whatever. And then so that was in 1992, but they screened it in 1994 in Sundance, where it kind of just ended up in the lap of uh, James O. Brooks, who said, well, that's cool. Can we um, can we speak to these guys? And then uh, they, they flew, him, flew them to Los Angeles, apparently, and then they were very um, awkward about flying first class. Apparently, Owen Wilson wanted to... Uh, return like exchange his fare for a coach ticket and pocket the change but they told them that you know the money would go back to the credit card that was used to pay for it so (laughs) So sensible thing in my opinion that's great yeah i know right but then they so he said ah shit (laughs) i'm gonna fly back uh i'm gonna fly there in in first class anyway so so yeah they 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 got uh, some some few million dollars i think Five million dollars to make it from James L. Brooks, and uh, uh, they somehow actually attracted James Khan. I, I think initially they re want they also wanted Bill Murray. I think Pro- to, to probably do they attracted him with four million dollars. Probably. <laughs> so we're gonna <laughs> we're gonna get to that as well. Uh, hopefully. Yeah. So they made this movie. I think against all odds, I think it was the worst test screened film in the history of. Um, I think it's Columbia. Yeah, it's Columbia. Yeah, Columbia. <laughs> uh, James L. Brooks was kind of has was kind of trepidatious about this whole thing because he he actually smelled this. There were like red flags everywhere because apparently Wes Anderson wasn't taking any notes during any meetings. <laughs> so, so they're just like they're not listening to us guys. Okay, <laughs> so, so that's 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 something that happened. Anyway, I so made terms mo- of endearment, you know. I know, right. <laughs> Anyway, so they released it in 1996. Um, I think it's also kind of was released through Sundance. Can't remember now. I think it was. Yes, yes, it was. I think no, maybe it wasn't. I don't think it played Sundance. No, it wasn't. No, I think they just released it in in just in general in 1996. Um, I think it only played in like 40 something theaters, so it didn't make a lot of money. It made. Just about shy of a half a million, I think, and then and then some change later on. Um, so it was a massive bomb. However, critics absolutely loved it. Filmmakers loved it. Uh, it kind of became a bit of an icon, in you know, a bit, bit of a sort of like a lightning in a bottle rocket um, among uh, sort of the cinephiles of 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 the nineties. And kind of just like some critics just talked about it. It's like Reservoir Dogs meets bre- Breathless, and you know, Scorsese says one of my favorite top 10 movies of of the 90s you know so so people in the now really loved it but then people kind of just like regular folks were like meh uh and then you know it kind of just as a result of this kicked off Wes Anderson's career actually kicked off Owen Wilson's career and Luke Wilson's too I think because maybe Mm -hmm. for Luke Wilson what maybe for Luke Wilson and for Owen Wilson these were their first roles I think for Andrew Wilson I think he started in some kind of a tv film um but anyway, so these these three basically just started their careers uh, on the back of the rocket's failure, 
<laughs> commercial failure but a critical success and then now the rest is history Wes Anderson's kind of just career evolved into what it is now I think at the time of the recording I think we're still anticipating um, the release of Asteroid City so that's going to be interesting well we also have the World so, Doll one possibly at the end of the year yeah yes, yes. so so there's so there, there's a lot to be to be talking about I think so let's just start with our initial impressions so how about we just say what we think about Bottle Rocket which is you know feature debut of, of one Wes Anderson so Ian how about you tell us what you think about Bottle Rocket I like Bottle Rocket although he has no idea what the fuck he's doing <laughs> but that's part of the charm of it fair enough is this it wow Awesome, we're not used to this brevity. <laughs> Usually kind of, this is where, this is like, okay, hold my beer. Yeah. This is going to be a long one. <laughs> Randy, your turn then. <laughs> All right, I, I was one of the few people to see this in theaters. Uh, in, the, in February of 96, I took my first visit outside the country, outside of Canada, uh, without my family. I went down to New York with a few friends on study break, and I strolled into Bottle Rocket on its opening weekend, and I absolutely loved it at the time. Um, and, you know, I was looking for it for its art house release. I can't remember if it played at the art house cinema um, where I live or not. But anyway, it eventually showed up on video and I was championing it for my friends and, uh, you know, really loved it. There's a quirky vibe that totally struck with me. Uh, the, the indie scene films that sort of, you know, that hit the right note from the indie scene really worked, you know, like, and Reservoir Dogs is, is part of that. That's not a bad connection, but totally different vibes. Um, I really like, this is sort of a lovable film. The characters have this lovable innocence. It's funny, but it's not going for slapstick. I always liked the idea of uh, heists, you know, when I was really young, I, I liked the, the shenanigans of the Apple Dumpling Gang. Um, so I, I, you know, I really, really like this. I thought it was done well and I love that it wasn't, it was hilarious to me, but not playing it for slapstick. I think Owen Wilson is a Marvel. I, I totally vibed just with his, his dry humor and sort of his fresh, distinct, uh, character, you know, and I wouldn't necessarily say he has much range cause he usually sticks within, you know, a fairly, uh, <laughs> a fairly small range of what he's doing here. Um, uh, but it, it, typically works for me. Uh, I think this film is just absolutely charming, but I was really nervous about revisiting it because it's been over a decade since I saw it. And I thought, is all this fun nostalgia that I have for this film, is it going to crash and, and burn here and I'm going to like pick it apart? Uh, no, I still love it. Although this viewing it, I see it more as Luke Wilson's movie. He's sort of the centerpiece in here. I never really oh, noticed yeah. Luke Wilson. It's before. completely his movie. It's totally his movie. And uh, like he is, you know, not just the central piece, like I knew he was the central piece, obviously, but I, I gravitate towards him because he's, he's the mediator t uh, personality type and he's got a lot going on. And to me, this film sort of struck a bit of a chord because I think it's a coming of age story. And I was looking at it through that lens, only a coming of age story for, you know, 22 year olds. He's this lost generation that, say, has finished university and now they don't know what to do and they're being pulled in different directions. Do I follow my passion or do I follow my heart? And uh, do I have to, you know, just sort of do what my family tells me? And so these here I sort of identified with a little bit maybe at the time. I think a lot of people do in, you know, just post-university trying to find themselves. And 
that I think here is in spades. I think it's very sweetly told. And I think an awful lot of this very unique camaraderie amongst the uh, performers. And uh, yeah, I absolutely love Bottle Rocket. Over to you, Jakob. Awesome. <laughs> I mean, I'll say this. I mean, this is something that, and this is a sort of like a personal statement. I don't think, maybe with the exception of the Grand Budapest Hotel and now this, I don't think I've ever seen a Wes Anderson film more than once. <laughs> Just put it that way. And then most of them I really like. Most of them. Like the French Dispatch could can just really go and suck a dick. Like, but just, but, but you know, just, but we're gonna get to this. This is a whole separate conversation, I think. But in just in terms of like Bottle Rocket as a film, um, I saw this years ago, um, not as, not in the theater, because I was, uh, I think I was too young to be, to appreciate it. And I'm, I'm not sure what I, what I, I would have even been aware of it being a thing. Anyway, so I watched it now. And um, I actually ended up watching it twice because I, uh, on the first go, I didn't really make any notes. I didn't even like many just make make any sort of like, even mental sort of bookmarks of any kind. I was just vibing with it. And this is for me, this is again, like this is one of those films that it's, a, it's like a hangout experience that I'm just happy to be a part of. So I don't necessarily even, you know, ingest anything. I'm just happy to just sit there and then listen to Luke Wilson talk to me. Um and Owen Wilson going, caca! <laughs> uh, you know, <laughs> so I, I should probably just, um, you know, take it out as a drop somewhere. Like, uh, or at least, it, oh, wow. <laughs> just something like that. Um, but uh, in, in general, I kind of really like it. Borderline love it, I would probably say. And at this point, I'm, I'm crystallizing this, this sort of trajectory and sort of my own sort of appreciation of Wes Anderson's career is I think I like his earlier stuff way more than I like his later stuff, with the exception of the Grand Budapest Hotel, which just has me in stitches. I don't know why, but it does. Every time Adrian Brody says, it probably fucks them too. Like, I'm just, I, I don't know. Got something on me. Anyway, well, it, well so, it seems like Grand Budapest is always the one for people who aren't like huge Wes Anderson fans. That's the yeah. one they love. I don't know what it is. I don't know if this is the sort of the babushka doll sort of structure that kind of does it for it. I think it's just, I think, the sort of the tipping point, the pinnacle of him kind of just going full on sort of idiosyncratic. And then now he's, I don't know. We're going to get to it in a second because I think there's a lot to be talking about when it comes to Bolo Rockets, specifically as a piece in Wes Anderson's career about um, how it fits into the grand scheme of sort of his of development as a as an author or or even and and the, the themes he's exploring but i think it's probably a good idea to start with the movie itself just by the way so first little question i i kind of wanted to to pose uh did you guys see the the short film it's based on i i ha- have but not in a long time i was gonna watch it but i didn't have time yeah i have not i would right. love to have not because I've just like just before we started, uh, I watched it because it's on YouTube and it's like literally like twelve minutes long. We can actually pause this and watch it. <laughs> so um, no, but I just wanted to kind of just uh, see how this how, how this plays out. But we can actually weave, weave it in elsewhere. But then let's just kind of talk about this as a as a movie because I think this whole this whole month we just decide let's just do nineties heist films again. Like, does it actually fit as a heist film for you? Like, what kind of kind a movie of. is this? Kind what of kind a, of movie is this? Like, let's 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 hear some thoughts on that. It's a dramedy with a little bit of a heist at the end. 
yeah, I think the heist is the the heist slash heists are are fun. But you know, to me again, like I'll, I go to this, I, I see this totally now as you know, a, a young adult coming of age, you know, mm-hmm. lost wayward, you know, guys entering the workforce uh, type of film and a buddy film. Um, but, you know, one of the things that makes it interesting is the fact that you've got this backdrop of these, you know, silly heists. Mm-hmm. Well, and also, I mean, the characters are dreamers, which is always a sort of theme throughout his films. Like Steve Zissou is a dreamer. Mm-hmm. Matt's is a dreamer. The kids mm-hmm. in Moonrise King- Kingdom are, kind of dream up this plot and go on their little merry adventure yeah and so in dignan is kind of like a like that exa- right? exactly totally he's a total yeah. sort of don quixote-esque type of character mm-hmm. <clears throat> which i, so, I, I know, was so, that's why i've always seen him fall closer to someone like terry gilliam then like everyone goes like you know he rips off the graduate and hal ashby and like French New Wave, he's actually close to like Tim Burton and Gilliam, kind of creates his own little universe and all about dreamers. I mean, it, it fits a little bit because if you think about it, I mean, is it, is, you, if you read Squint, you could see, oh, it's kind of sort of like Harold and Maud. It has this, this sort of like 70s Bob Rafelson sort of thing going about it because like my little note I made for myself was like, look, Wilson kind of looks and feels like he's directed to to look like young Jack Nicholson. Mm. Like he's just, I don't know. He has something about him. It's just like young young Jack Nicholson who doesn't <clears throat> really know how to pick up women. <laughs> just <laughs> difficult to imagine. <laughs> yeah. yeah, there's a there's a suave element that's missing uh, for, for Luke Wilson. But yeah, I, I hear you to a point. Could you, could you imagine Jack Nicholson in the scene with Inez when he goes like, so what are you going to do later? And she goes like, I don't know. And he just starts cleaning rooms with her. <laughs> just... he's, he's more of Dustin Hoffman in The Graduate. <laughs> yeah, true, yeah. <laughs> but then like, an, an, like a mental note I made to myself, to myself on the second pass as I was watching this, I was thinking to myself, this is like um, an art house dumb and dumber. Which... <laughs> And I'm and, and I'm just thinking to myself, is actually is this actually sort of like is Dumb and Dumber inspired by the uh, by the short film, or or is or is the other is it the other way around? Because like you could see like Dignan is kind of sort of like Lloyd Christmas, like he's the guy with a plan, you know. <laughs> Watching it this time, I'm like I I feel that there's a a little bit more intelligence that goes into sort of the way the characters are written in a way than mm-hmm. I had ever given this film credit before. Um, now this this sort of falls on the fact that for some odd reason I did the Myers Briggs test online this week, so I started seeing. Hmm, I wonder what personality type Dignan is. I wonder what personality type Anthony is, and I think like to a T, Anthony is INFP, the mediator, and to a T, Dignan is the virtuoso. And I, I think that there's a very specific. Um, uh, there's very uh, very specific character traits that are b- built into these characters sort of as they're written and that influences the connection between them because I find it a very unique connection that the characters have like Anthony being this guy who's a friend to all he's you know he's generous and kind and empathetic to to his own peril right he takes on so mm-hmm. much stuff that he burns out or you know he sort of crashes and um, you know, has these issues that he starts off in, in the hospital and Dignant is just completely oblivious to all of that. And, but, you know, like he's, he's blinded by optimism and energy and, and passion for his ideas. And I, I kept thinking about 
myself as I was finishing university, hmm, what am I going to do next? And, you know, some of the people, that's what, yeah. And I had seen this around that time and I don't know why I didn't clue in that that should have been my path forward is just buy fireworks and uh, rob bookstores. So on, on, on the note of like, you know, trying to kind of decide what, what to do with your life and like, is this movie kind of more about this sort of, like, sort of aspect of growing up? Do you guys see it that way as, is this, and actually does it actually fit in the, um, let's just say the vibe of the nineties. Cause it kind of looks like there's, there's a conversation to be had about um, whether this belongs with, um, Richard Linklater early things like you know the, you know the slacker type movies or um, like Suburbia or Clerks things like that. Is it, is it a bit more like the Hal Hartley films? Mm-hmm. I don't know if you, if you've seen his early stuff. Like yeah, it's tr- been a while. Trust and uh, Simple Men, especially. I don't mm. think I've seen any of this. He, he's he's right? he's really good. He, his early stuff is really good. Later stuff, he's a bit shit, but. Mm-hmm. Didn't he have one where there was a, um, uh, I forget, he's a character actor. I know he's in Rescue Me, but he plays a monster opposite Sarah Polly. Yeah, no no that? such thing. No such thing, yeah. That's mm-hmm. that's him. That's yeah. not a good one. Uh, <laughs> totally forget, except for those details. I think that this uh, sort of fits with um, some of the vibing that's coming out of uh you know, the, the indie scene, um, Kevin Smith, that's sort of a, a good take. This sort of vibes with that type of humor. Um, and it, it feels, it has the indie vibe sort of in the way that Reservoir Dogs and Link Letters stuff does. Like it just, it just sort of feels, um, you know, indie and natural, but, but this has its own unique vibe. Like I, I feel that Owen Wilson sort of brings a, a very distinct charm to this. And uh, like I said earlier, like it's, it's the type of comedy that I find quite hilarious, but it's because he's, he's playing everything straight and the laughs come out of the, the character and the character's belief in himself. There's not setups for punchlines. It's a very casual type of, of humor. And uh, that's, that's in part, I think what makes it feel very vibey and sort of like a hangout film. Although I wouldn't say mm-hmm. it's really a hangout film per se, but it, it, it does have those types of vibes. Why wouldn't you say it's a hangout film, by the way? Because I, I wanna, feel I it does. I don't want to, you know, start a fight, but, you know, I kind of do feel like it's a hangout okay. film. <laughs> no, fair enough. Like to, to me, a, a hangout film doesn't necessarily have a strict arc or a plot with a rising action. And I feel this does. I guess I don't know. Like, I see Jackie Brown as as a bit of a hangout film. Yeah, that Jack, has a, Jackie Brown that has definitely a hangout film. Yeah, and I, I would say that that exists in in both worlds because it's fun to hang out. Yeah, well, fair enough. I, but I, for me, if I call something strictly a hangout film film, it's it's because I'm not getting off the couch. I'm just sort of hanging out with All these right. people. I suppose like, there may but be fair. two two different definitions of what a hangout film is because I think the way say something like Jackie Brown is a hangout film for me even though there is a story in there I kind of mm-hmm. like being a part of it I'm just like mm-hmm. I'm you know it's cool that you guys do this right whereas there's the other definition of just being there in the space with characters who don't necessarily do anything special right right which like is Cass- like some it, of Cassavetti's stuff that we've gone through recently. Yeah, or I don't know. Everybody wants so. some days and confused, right? Yeah, so things like this, like or American Graffiti, things like that, yep. right? Yeah, yeah. Does it? Yeah, does it kind of then? 
especially on the comedies, but when you, when you think about the vibe, because at least I'm, from where I'm sitting, I, I see a lot of connective tissue with something like Clark. So I see like there's this sort of the early to mid 90s vibe kind of just protruding through here. And then I'm just wondering, especially when you touched on the comedy, because someone like Kevin Smith would be actually just writing jokes in there, right? And then these people would be reciting jokes. So, you know, they're, they'll, they'll just have a whole skit about Star Wars. They'll just talk about mm-hmm. snowballing. <laughs> or, you know, things like that. What's the comedy like in here? And I, I feel like this is also, this may actually traverse into a, just in general conversation about Wes Anderson and how he's progressing. But how do you guys feel about the, because uh, I feel this movie is like insanely funny. I don't know where you guys it's, sit it's, on it's this. Funny. I don't think it's one of his funniest. I think it's one of his sort of more, one of his less funny ones, to be honest. But uh, I mean, it's, 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 you know, it's very, I, I, I know, as I said before, I think it definitely has some of the dead parents aspects of like the Hal Hartley stuff. Some, maybe some of the Jim Jarmusch stuff that was coming out around that time. And also with Jim Jarmusch is, you know, he, he always, tries to have a kind of crime aspect to a lot of his films. Those are the films he he likes to watch himself. So, I mean, actually, that's a good shout when you think about mm-hmm. it. There's this, there's this sort of aspect to this. But then in terms of comedy, I, at least I feel like... Um, do you feel like his later stuff is more is funnier because um, it's more visual? Or because I think it's more kind of on the nose all, all of a sudden. It's more ridiculous, right? Uh, I mean, I, th- I, think so- I think some of that is true. I think, you know, some... I mean, I, I know you, did, you said you said earlier, like the dispatch. I mean, one I, I I saw it a couple of times in the cinema, and I a few times I walked out not because the, I thought it was a bad movie or anything, is because they, they didn't know how to project it correctly because of all the different aspect ratios. Oh right, and mm, and with yeah. end of that film, so many of the gags are completely visual gags. Mm-hmm. So you, half the time you like were missing half the gags by the way they horribly projected it all right <laughs> so, so i was just for a second it's like i didn't walk out because i'm um, you know just it, it was a bad film it was just like laughing so hard it was asked to leave <laughs> no no it was simply they didn't know how to project it correctly uh no well, like, one point like, was, was the yeah. best best i i think i did it twice i walked out of one was the cinema the city world in bradford was just terrible but i Sadly, I have to go there because my girlfriend lives near Bradford, and so I, I saw I went to see it there on like afternoon by myself, and I went to complain because it was cutting off the subtitles. Because obviously, oh. and then when I, when I complained, they just moved the they just blew the screen up and it was off the off the screen like the image was off the screen, <laughs> and I was just like, "Fuck, sis, I'm walking." Like, well, they're not cut off anymore. Like I remember in, 24, in 2014 when Grand Budapest was was out, I think they had notes on the on like on on the outside of the screening rooms saying, "Please do not complain that there are black bars to the, on the side because part of the film is in different aspect ratios because people in there were absolute <laughs> just fucking savages who didn't like." There's black stuff on the on the sides of the of the screen. This is totally wrong. Well, well, he needs to send notes to the fucking projectionist, <laughs> or, or, or or the person who runs. I should actually that's offense to even call them projectionists because they aren't. The the guy who runs around and presses play on the hard drive. Mm. Yep. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> that's kind of what it is. 
for me, the comedy here isn't written as punchlines. And I think that that's something that a lot of, a, a lot of uh, filmmakers and storytellers don't really do too often is that they trust that the actors through their own, you know, charm and their belief in their characters can sort of project humor out, out of, you know, what they're doing. Uh, this is a film that as I watch it, I don't really have any barrel laughs, uh, you know, like big, big guffaws throughout, but I'm always chuckling to myself or I'm saying that's funny. Whenever Owen Wilson uh, rides down the alley on this small little motorcycle, it's sort of ridiculous. And I'm saying to myself, that's sort of funny. Um, you know, without me actually laughing, but just the the film is just constant, uh, constant with that. When Luke Wilson decides to follow Inez around through her, uh, through <laughs> her work routine, and, yes. and then he starts <laughs> fluffing the pillows and it's just, that's funny. And it's, and it, it comes from the way that Anderson's working with the actors and having them to just, you know, go with it. Trust me, it's funny. And you know, when you put people acting, you know, serious in a somewhat ridiculous situation, you know, it's funny whenever they rob the the, the library or the bookstore or whatever it is. I think there's a Barnes and, and Noble, I think. Yeah, Potentially. Is, yeah, maybe. Maybe, um, maybe a Books anyway, a Million, which is a sort of southern book chain. So. so when they rob that and then the bank manager says, don't call me an idiot. It's just this, it's just <laughs> this weird little moment. It's like, that's actually sort of funny. And then they have to get they're look they start looking for bigger bags and there's no bigger bags. They have, they have that to becomes just funny. Stuff it in small bags. And small. this is funny. <laughs> it's funny. It just makes me smile. And the film is just just rich with that stuff. You know, that's the vibe. That's, that's the, the vibe. Yeah. And that these guys are riffing in a hilarious way. Um, oh, can I come in? Sorry, we're closed. Uh, I lost I left my sweater. Do you have a lost and found? Can I check that out? And then Dignan comes behind. Uh, uh, can I come in? I forgot something. Why? Why? No, we're closed. You can't. You let that guy in. What's he doing? What's his story? It's like <laughs> it's oh, just. I, I love some money. And he just goes, "I love." Some yes. Money. Yeah, I left something too. Left money. Yeah, and he pulls the gun. It's just funny. Like it's not a barrel laugh or anything, but it's just funny. Like this film makes me smile, basically from the opening to the ending. It's just, it's just great. Just great. Just for me, this goes to show that I think er earlier, sort of Wes Anderson is kind of a little bit more subtle in these ways. Like for me, the funniest joke that they've ever written, and I think Owen Wilson may have been kind of responsible for this as well, was in Rushmore when he shows up in, in scrubs and he's like, I like your nurse's uniform. These are OR, OR scrubs. Oh, are they? <laughs> <It's> just, <laughs> this is like the best joke ever. And it's just completely just, but they, they write it out. They just don't pay attention to it. I think that's kind of the key to it. When you know this is gonna make an appearance. When what what the hell you know like when they talk about Grace, this you know his his little sister. What has she accomplished in life? Excellent. You know, she's and eight. that's probably just that's probably just riffing. I think that Owen Wilson is just one of these naturally yeah. funny lippy guys that just sort of comes out with these gems, and he's just got this sort of fun fun persona, and that sort well, of comes just, out. They were then just like interviewing Robert Musgrave for, for to be the getaway driver, and it's just like just put some hearts in it, and he it just it's just like I read, you know, I read just takes it seriously like a job interview, and the reason they're doing it is just because the this is the only guy they know who has a car. Yeah. <laughs> well, 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 one of my favorite bits is is when they're doing the heist, and and he's like, and they're like, 
put your mask on. He's like, you, we've already seen no. we, we, now. We've already seen your face. Yeah, yeah he puts the mask on. <laughs> he puts the mask on. Yes. Yeah. Uh, I was just like, I was like, oh, the, the, the elevator was fucking stuck or something like this. And it was just like, oh, it's so good. Like, no, nothing makes sense. And it's, it's great when the elevator goes up and old. Oh, and Wilson runs up and says, I'm going to secure the stairwell. <laughs> it's just, it's just, a good, just, yeah. just runs up one one set of steps. And then I do like it. It's, it's a visual joke that the uh, the elevator keeps going up to the third floor and they have to bring it down. I think that's funny as well. <laughs> but, you know, this is kind of, <clears throat> I think this, to me, this kind of goes to show that I think it's, I don't know, Wes Anderson's and then Owen Wilson's kind of sensibilities kind of merge quite well in here. And I think this is, yeah, it is a lightning in a bottle in a way for me, in terms of kind of, how, kind of how how the comedy kind of works, and it's kind of interesting maybe to touch on how this kind of developed later into in, into his style because I think there is a conversation to be had on the back of this on what this movie is like stylistically and how it compares to say where Wes Anderson went later. I'll f- I'll throw this in as an add-in to prompt the discussion possibly um owen wilson i don't think has written anything since royal tenenbaums and i think that his three screenwriting credits are are mm-hmm. this co-writers on this and tenenbaums and rushmore i, I think mean, he peaked with tenenbaums when he got the uh i think the yeah, oscar, the oscar nom nomination it, right? yeah <clears throat> so he was just like my job here is done i think i'm done yes and he and ben stiller were on the red carpet that night and they had a hilarious bit where owen wilson was rubbing in to Ben Stiller that he had the Oscar nomination and Ben Stiller didn't. <laughs> um, but do you think that with where, and I haven't, I have also seen most of um, Wes Anderson's films just once and they tend to sort of slide away from me at times. But I know that my, my favorites are Tenenbaums and Bottle Rocket and I like Budapest too, but you know I should revisit all of his stuff just to get a little bit more of a firm. I've 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 I've, I've always said they often get better on on second and third viewings. Fair enough. Um, Well, what do you think about the Owen Wilson connection? Do you think there's sort of magic when these two guys are working together because they were roommates in university and there's Roman Coppola in there as well somewhere. Mm -hmm. No, no, Coppola's not on, on. on this one no he's not on this no. one no but i think they're later on yeah they're he, kind of he, he wrote moonrise and i think maybe grand budapest yeah anyway but just like on, on like i didn't want to derail this so how do you feel about this of the like is there a magic here connection well I, my suspicion is there is yeah i mean if you know if you've been like living and hanging out with this guy for like four four or five years or whatever it was you will kind of naturally kind of know what his sort of speak speech patterns and you know how what what how he's funny and how he's not funny and you tailor right around his strengths and weaknesses as a comedic performer i mean for me i mean this is this is going to be a springboard to something that i kind of have in my back pocket just as a as a meme for myself is um like i feel owen wilson kind of tempers anderson just a little bit I mean, stylistically, fair enough. In here, they don't quite know how to make a movie, but you can kind of sort of see where the idiosyncratic sort of things about what you identify as elements of style in Wes Anderson's films are, right? Like sometimes you'll see 
oh, this shot's kind of sort of weirdly perfectly symmetrical. Or they have these sort of tableau shots, you know, like straight down pointing at a table, whatever, because he has this sort of weird thing about arranging shit, right? Occasionally, it's just like these little snippets of, this is going to be cool. I really like this. And I have a feeling there's there are these other people in there kind of tempering this, saying like, no, can we focus on this for a second, right? So I feel like with Tenenbaums, I think this kind of era almost ends. And then like it's almost kind of like, no, he's like now, after that, you have Wes Anderson kind of unchecked, like unshackled. And then he kind of just runs away with these sort of stylistic proclivities unchecked, right? And I feel like maybe this, I mean, this is conjecture because I don't know the man and I, I have I have not been in the room with them. But I can, it kind of looks like there's, you know, like Owen Wilson leaves the picture and, and then the sort of the uh, s- substance goes slightly below style. And here in, in Rushmore and in Tenenbaums, you kind of see more of a balance. And in the earlier stuff like Rushmore and this, you kind of see that there's a substance kind of takes precedence. It takes priority over everything. That's kind of my take. So like, yeah, it kind of just looks like that to me. I'm going to add to something that um, Ian, you said that made me think of another conversation. I think it's, it's probably quite astute that um, if these guys were sort of living with one another and getting along and vibing and doing other stuff around campus with, with one another and theater and whatever, um, it's easy for Anderson to write for uh, Wilson. Um, and, you know, they just sort of compliment one another. Another time we talked about this type of chemistry goes back to our chat on Ghostbusters, mm-hmm. where you had Harold Ramis, who came in to help write. <laughs> Tempering <help>. Dan Aykroyd's shit. <laughs> <laughs> um, but also, knowing Bill Murray so well, he would write jokes that he felt that Bill Murray would have come up with him, himself or would have, you know, would fit really well with uh, Murray's type of comedy. So there, there might be that level of... Uh, comfort with one another that's coming out in in chemistry and just sort of coming out on screen i just thought that no was really good i think for me this is a perfect shout because like yeah. if you think about like what dan Aykroyd's capable of when no one's retempering him like you get nothing but trouble right 100 <laughs> percent. so so yeah. it, it, it kind of looks like it like you know like you get um fantastic mr fox and you get the grand budapest and isle of dogs whenever no one's re <clears throat> like no one's really questioning the guy's vision right which is, you know, it's it's a matter of taste whether you like it or not. I don't I don't want to argue over what 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 I feel about these movies because they're you know, like eventually they for me they kind of just tip over and I, I don't know. Not a biggest fan. Not the biggest fan of like the French Dispatch or Isle of Dogs. I don't know. But I will say that it, it kind of looks like you know the meme I had for myself was you know like early early Wes Anderson is kind of like Mickey Rourke in the nineties and then now it's just like this is Mickey Rourke now. <laughs> Just it's just like got real, just like looks kind of the same, but it's just there's shit happened along the way, you know. It's kind of like someone, you know, like, like, like I don't know, like someone who just decided, like for me, that like watching like Ball Rocket was basically just looking at someone, someone getting their first tattoo, knowing that they're now like they have horns and like 27 piercings and things, shit like this. <laughs> <laughs> so, you know, that's kind of how I see it. Now I want to watch all of Wes Anderson's film and see if there's a grounding influence that um, Wilson's involvement with the scripts has. So now I'm really curious. Uh, I, 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 mean, I think he just always needs a co-screenwriter. I mean, that's part, part of it. He always needs his butt, a buddy to write with. 
I mean, makes sense because I think mm. I watched Royal Tenenbaums just last last Monday, right? And then it it just it's not too far off from. I mean, like I don't know how many years after was like Life Aquatic. Five uh, years two, later, three, four, three years later. Four, yeah. No, no, four. four it's two thousand one. Was where yeah, Life Aquatic was and it, It's the difference between the two is just massive. Like in terms of how the movie takes takes itself, like whether it's self, like it's no longer, it, like and I, I know, like in even in the Royal Tenenbaums, you can see that there is there there is a conscious attempt at an elevated st- elevated comedy, but there is some kind of a beating heart underneath it, and then it kind of just becomes layered with style. It's still there. It's still great to, to look at, but it kind of looks like it's a completely different beast, and it kind of looks like someone's just got you know just there's no no one no one's holding the leash anymore, and he's just like he's like this dog in the park. Just no one's holding the leash, so all, all he does is just spins in circles. Just so happy to be free. <laughs> I, I I I would not say that. I actually think Grand Budapest is a very melancholy, quite deep film in many ways. And I would say Life Aquatic is a very melancholy film. I think I mean, that's actually one of the big themes of all the films are quite melancholy. I think they all are in, mm. in a way. It's just for me, like the the further you go, the more difficult it is to kind of fish out because um, it's kind of layered underneath more and more style and more and more sort of this sort of almost live action animation decisiveness. Like he's trying to morph his movies into to become very specifically visually um inclined whereas in here like in bottle rocket in rushmore and in in royal tenements you don't see it that much in royal tenements a little bit more you can see that he's a little bit more sort of self-assured but in here like it it could have been anybody right this style is kind of very very tame and i'm wondering whether this is owen wilson going like just shh west like we're writing a comedy just like can you focus for a second you know, I think it's just the budget, to be honest. I think if he had the money, he would have went all out on it. And being green and sort of learning the way, but, um, but yeah, it's, it's like there's there's limitations in terms of what you can do. Like he's 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 big on these, you know, sets and framing and all, all these types of things that you know aren't available to him. I'll say here and in Rushmore at least. Well, 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 yeah, well, so well, well Rushmore yeah. has a bit of the framing. Like that, that's where his style really starts to flourish yeah it starts to kick mm-hmm. in so what's the difference because now you could see okay well because something i wanted to kind of just run by you is the sort of the idea that this movie was kind of pan not panned critics loved it but people didn't give it toss right at the time in 1996 even though you're like smacking them a lot of the indie revival so people were kind of in on this right this sort of new new authors coming in refreshing the landscape you know like Jarmusch was in Tarantino was in Kevin Smith was in this this Soderbergh was in right like this this was happening right mm-hmm. and all of a sudden this guy comes around and 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 everyone's like no like Paul Thomas Anderson was in like this is you know this is well, like why well, well, what, I mean, what's happening I mean I mean like Sydney did not do great when it came out yeah, sure. <laughs> no, enough. but we're right in that era, right? Because Boogie Nights, <clears throat> Boogie Nights would be nineteen ninety what seven, yeah, seven, yeah, I think. Yeah. Um, and but Sydney, I think, was ninety six, or was it even earlier ninety seven? So my, we're in my, the right. Might have been ninety five, actually. 
Mm-hmm. Yeah, but we're right in that in that in that spot. Like, I would say the Coens too; they're doing stuff. But as but well. you have like Noah Baumbach made like three films at this time, and no one gave a shit. Well, he said, "Well, Kicking and Screaming was probably just about at that time, right?" Yeah, it's ninety-five, I think ninety-four. Yeah, mm-hmm. and that but then, came yeah, like, yeah, I suppose some of them came and went, but then you think, like, I, I see this almost kind of like a, you know, it is in a way a companion piece to, uh, yeah, clerics, right? Or even, even like dazed and confused in a way. But well, so some of them, they, well, well, they kind of... I, I would say it's like sort of mishmash of some of the Hal Hartley stuff and and mm-hmm. sort of Reservoir Dogs and maybe even some of the John Dahl crime stuff at the time. Mm-hmm. So yeah, so but so what's I mean, what I'm kind of interested in a little bit more on the back of this is now, it's not only critics who love him, right? It's kind of it's almost expected that he enjoys acclaim from all corners, right? Yeah, he's one of those. Mm-hmm. He's one of the few filmmakers that people will actually go see his film because it's a Wes Anderson film. Exactly. Yeah. Why? What's what what's changed? Like how how is this movie still? Because I I think. People maybe retroactively embraced it, but I feel like it's still a little bit kind of like under the radar for people because, because you know, like all of a sudden, at least I feel like the uh, audiences are more <clears throat> in tune with his more, for lack of a better word, resplendent stuff, right? This is kind of one of those movies that I think for conversations about Wes Anderson really start with Rushmore. Mm-hmm. How, does, how does that sit? I think that's fine. I think, I think that's where his style really kicks in, you know, and and that ended up being a, at the time of a pretty decent success for him. Well, it's not a huge success. I mean, and people forget Life Aquatic was a bomb when it came out. Mm-hmm. So it's not like he's always been successful. Yeah, it's it's an interesting question because, like, the other side of this is James L. Brooks is the one who's sort of the sugar daddy here and, and making this happen. He's getting it a release. Now, mind you, it's it's dumped in the doldrums of, of winter and not necessarily with much for expectations. Um, but Bottle Rocket gets a little bit of the treatment that um, some of the Hal Hartley films or mm-hmm. Noah Baumbach, some of these other first first outings uh, don't get. Um, I, I wondered, like some of the names on on the list that, that you mentioned, Yakum, like uh, Kevin Smith and you know Tarantino for that matter, I wonder if it's the work that Miramax is doing, uh, to be honest, because they know how to sell these stories, whereas James L. Brooks took it to uh, Columbia proper and it was just sort of re- released as, as a normal film. It just sort of became part of, you know, Columbia's slate and they just released it as is with $10 million marketing budget and you know that that was that i doubt i doubt it was 10 million i'm sure it was maybe a million tops you think so uh probably right but hard hard to say but if but the big studios like you know they just they made their films they released their films they bought some films here and there and it was just sort of a way of doing business but something that else is happening in the 90s is that these studios are uh you know they're they're coming up with these divisions like Miramax for, you know, the, the independent, uh, the independent films and the independent markets and Columbia, this is just Columbia releasing as a normal, as a normal release. And they, it was the same type of thing with go Columbia had mm-hmm. go as well. And go was released in like April, another doldrums type of month. And, you know, that had similar vibes as well. Uh, three years later, I'm going to say, and, uh, 
it it made no money but it's it's a film that really resonated with me and you know had that really hip cool vibe but i just i just wonder if like the big studios don't know what to do with these small hip titles that's sort of the the theory that's plopping around my head right now but it kind of it kind of feels like they probably already thought that they wanted to emulate something like a reservoir dogs sort of um, um like they wanted to kind of capture the sort of lightning in a bottle in a way no where there's this guy kind of coming out of a film festival just let's pick up his 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 stuff and then let's get i don't know someone interested i think they wanted bill murray or whatever but let's get let's put james Caan in this you know like this would be the equivalent of like let's get harvey keitel involved right although i think harvey keitel was was the guy who um found tarantino right I think Jordan, per- yeah. personally, I think that he he was personally invested in this, but it kind of looks like they're trying to kind of just uh, engineer this, and then they they don't did they miss the trick? Because I think this is something that I mistakenly maybe said in, even in the beginning that this movie actually went on the on the festival circuit, and it I think it didn't. Right? Is this the magic connection? Like you should have put I, I, it in. I, I was just somewhere. looking, and I was like, I was curious if it was released under Sony Pictures Classics. They didn't even bother putting it under like the little you know, in the art house imprint. And like, if mm-hmm. you look at it, like what they released in 96, you have Welcome to the Dollhouse, which actually was a moderate box mm-hmm. office success for the time. This is around the same time. You have Lone yeah. Star, yeah. which was also a big, kind of big hit for, for the period. But, yeah, but I think they were they had this sort of the thing going on for how maybe this is the difference because the, the thing that these films would have gone going for themselves is that they are genre films, right? Yeah. Mm-hmm. Whereas, is this movie a genre film or is this movie a genre film only superficially? Because if you start digging into it, it's like no one gives a shit about the heist in here. Oh, I, I think that it's it's marketable based on the heist because that's where a good chunk of its charm and originality to a point come come in. Um, so, yeah, I, I think that this, this is totally marketable as a heist film. It's just if you dig a little deeper, the, the film's a little bit more special than that at the script level. Mm-hmm. It just but makes I, me wonder whether there were walkouts in cinemas because you could totally cut a trailer to this that would look like heat, you know? Oh, yeah. <laughs> yeah, for sure. <laughs> you could run it out with the little baggies <laughs> of, of cash. Let's put some music on. $400. No, because uh, they have these, like, insert shots when they shoot guns. Mm-hmm. It, like you could you could cut 90 seconds of footage that would make it look like the dark night well, well should, should, should we look at the trailer and see what what it was we should probably we probably should because i made a mistake of not doing yeah it let, let's just, let's know. get the trailer up let's see how let's see what, okay this should be a funny thing i know them hmm. shooting guns by buying the uh yeah, the, the illegal gun that that was the poster and I, i'm pretty sure that's in the trailer if i remember correctly yeah like like yeah, basically the, the last half is all. Yeah, there's things. guns. Everything. Yeah, the, yeah. The, the last half of it is the heist, basically, the trailer. So we're like, oh, this is some quirky little comedy, and here's the heist stuff. Uh, I wonder whether people are like, what the hell is this? 
Uh-huh. I don't know. Like to me, that that has a, a that has a comedy and uh, you know also like indie action, anti procedural type of appeal. Like I, I think it's for you know for a trailer um, and for you know pr- promotionals. I, I think it's rich with with possibility and imagery and. So I, I can't help but think that... They do have that, a scene where he's trying to kind of get break into a car using a coat hanger. Well, I mean, I think <laughs> also... Because he clearly so, doesn't know. I mean, I think also some of it is that they just knew it wasn't going to be a big success and that's this guy's clearly... We should probably try to be in bed with this guy and do more work with him because he's mm-hmm. clearly talented. But let's just dump this. And then he just fucks off to touchdown. And... Ian, did, did you just say that the, the feature-length Bottle Rocket did not do a festival run, per se, or nothing notable? Uh, I'll have a look. Because I, I, I would sort of guess that maybe a film like this, like something like Clerks and uh, Reservoir Dogs and Pulp Fiction and, you know, uh, Richard Linkletter's stuff, uh, pretty sure, like, before Sunrise, like, these types of films, they are getting a lot of word of mouth from the industry by performing well at, uh, uh, you know, at festivals and, you know, everyone around town sort of knows of these projects that are, that are happening, you know, just take how every, everyone Let's knew. Um, oh yeah. It's Boondock it- Saints, right? <laughs> everyone in town knew it. Everyone in town knew about it. So, I'm having a look right now and yeah, it was literally just dumped on February 21st, mm. 1996. And, I, and, I would say, and in most countries it's released straight to DVD or straight to mm. video. Oh, there you go. Yeah. So I would just say that Columbia didn't really know how to go about its business. And I wonder if that's because they're used to dealing at the time with bigger budget films, not these $5 million productions just didn't really know how to purchase a film and it, and, and it didn't even it, it, do it and right. it was released straight straight to DVD in Canada in 2002. <laughs> okay, so Jesus. it didn't it didn't come to my art house and I was upset for a year so probably. You had to wait a few years to actually see it on home video mm-hmm. then. Yeah. Yeah. Scandalous. Brutal. But could you imagine that? Six six years. Like, could you imagine? Like this, this is coming after Royal Tenenbaums. Like, yeah. just is is a thing at the Oscars, right? Just say, oh, can I watch previous films of this guy? Yeah, not all of them. <laughs> if you live in Canada, just like you're shit out of luck. You know? <laughs> no, I'm just wondering now. Did people? Did they actually not know how to how to take this? How not even sell this? Because it's not a product to market. It's a, it's a festival film. It's film. It's a film that's kind of should be kind of marketed to people who would appreciate well, it for I, I, as what something I, different. I right? would suspect they put all the resources towards Welcome to Dollhouse and Lone Star as like the two festival films that year. Mm-hmm. Yeah, and and those generated their mm-hmm. their word of mouth and their you know their the the critics uh, the critics came out with the reviews over the course of a month as it was slowly released and you know the the pr sort of launched from that and might have had award season stuff as well on those um a film we'll be talking about later uh the the good german i I, when i was looking into that i came across uh a bit with clooney talking about his partnership with soderbergh in the early 2000s because because of their connection to warner brothers and oceans they would approach Warner Brothers and Warner Brothers didn't know what to do with their smaller 
with mm. their smaller uh, type of film proposals, like the, the 15, $20 million budget. So it was actually Soderbergh and uh, Clooney that said, you guys need like an independent division. And that's sort of where Warner Independent came from. And I keep thinking of that here, that Columbia, if they were just sort of going through business and they have their their seasonal slate of films, they've got their winter films, they've got their spring films, they've got their summer films, and they've got their Christmas films, then they, they just dropped this and didn't really know what to do with it because they didn't know what to do with it. They dropped it in a dead month, February, and mm-hmm. you know they put a couple million on ads possible who knows how much but you know not much and it had sort of a minimal release and probably because it didn't have any proper uh word of mouth or advertising just did, the, did, the pieces that would did, normally sell a film did, like this weren't did there. sony even own columbia at this time or was that later i think it's le- later so that, that would that would make that would, that would make a lot of sense that they wouldn't know what because i think it. sony came in uh, i think I, don't quote me on this. I would imagine just just off the top of my head that Sony may have bought Columbia as a result uh, on the back of the big financial crisis where studios were in massive problems. Because this is where these sort of big takeovers kind of started now. Uh, 1989. So, so, okay. No, oh, okay. So a bit before this. Okay. Before this. Right, okay. Scratch that. I was full of shit. Uh, now... <laughs> I was wondering, like, what, did they not know how to market this? Because if you look at this, because they must have seen this, right? Like, they sh- they should have like watched the films. Like, okay, who do we sell this to? And then you, you, it's almost impossible to pin pin it down as like, do you pin it down as a comedy and sell it as a comedy? Do you pin pin it down as a heist film or as a procedural or whatever? Like, what is this? Jesus, this- it's the Evening Star all over with James L. Brooks not knowing how to. Uh- <laughs> find an audience <laughs> no but it's, i think it's an honest question right because like yep. because for me the, the answer is you you pin it on festival audiences who came in there armed to appreciate a film whatever it is just they have they come primed to you know to to take it in and then just give it a chance right because if you release it on the on the unsuspecting public they'll just go like where is this and they'll pass and some films if they have a decent release, even if it loses money in theaters at the time, that would end up serving as a good promotional tool for a successful run on home video mm-hmm. at, in rentals. And But see, this was just sort of dumped in the box office and with, without much fanfare. So when this hit, this this could have done really well on, on video, uh, but did not. Um, just because it didn't have a run to promote it. it, it there's just no real PR pieces around it. Yeah, I'm, I'm just and looking just, at what their slate yeah. that year was, and it, they didn't have that much, to be honest. Because the big Oscar contender that year was People for Larry Flint, which also yeah. been a mm-hmm. bit of an odd house hit at the same time as playing multiplexes. And also kind of well, popularity on the back of its controversy, right? Yeah, and, and then probably mm-hmm. the closest thing you would have had that they had to Baller Rock would have been Cable Guy was also a huge bomb at the time. Yes. Mm-hmm. But yeah. Cable Guy, you can pin on being a comedy just on the back of this having Jim Carrey in it. Mm-hmm. Very dark. He was like the highest paid actor ever yeah. at the time. But a very right? different comedy to what he had been doing. Well, yeah, but still, it has Matthew Broderick and, and yeah. J- Jim Cam- Carrey in it. So he, 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 there's no there's no debate. And if you're in a meeting room in, I don't know, where in Colombia, and say, like, how do we sell this? It's a comedy, Steve. Yeah. It has Jim Carrey in it. Yeah. End of story, right? That's how we market this. Problem is, it's a it's a it's a bit odd, right? But you know, 
I'm just wondering, like, now, as, uh, just to kind of wheel it back to the movie itself, as a result of this movie not being able to kind of just, I don't know, attract itself to its target audience, which I feel nowadays would be the the film Twitter audience almost, right? Yeah. Uh, mm-hmm. Did people miss out on like what this movie actually tries to do? And I feel like there's there's quite a lot of stuff that this movie actually has underneath. Like, did you actually enjoy any of the, or just pick up on the, the themes of like the brotherhood and loneliness? What do you feel about what this movie actually has underneath this sort of the comedy and, and everything and the, and the sort of the, uh, the quirkiness? I, I find it very interesting that they, they, they decide not to have them be brothers when that would just make so much more sense. Well, yeah, but then, uh, well, it, just blood brothers. But then again, I think... Well, they talk exactly the, the same. Well, yeah, they look the same. I know, exactly. It's just this, like... <laughs> it's just, like, that's a bizarre choice. But I guess that's also part of the quirk of it, is having them not be brothers. But then yeah, they, I, yeah. I think it adds to the chemistry that they're not brothers in a way, because I look at um, Luke Wilson's character as sort of the centerpiece here and he's friends with everyone and he's friends with Dignan he's friends with Bob but if you take Luke Wilson out of the mix Bob and Dignan aren't going to be friends with one another and I find that's interesting um, and a very specific dynamic because I've had friend groups like that where you know if we we get together a number of us can get together but they're all there because they know me but they would never get together on on their own so yeah. i find that sort of an interesting mm-hmm. uh piece here because it 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 puts um dignan and bob as acquaintances in a way more than anything and and that to me sort of it it, it makes the dynamic that much more interesting and the, the if you add a wrinkle to the dynamic as well and it's also then um anthony um knows that he's almost he feels almost like a bit of a I don't want to say pity, but he kind of feels like he needs to take care of Dignan, even though he he's looked upon as the troubled kid. Like he's just like, oh, because he because he because I don't know, he doesn't have the spine to kind of just take his problems um in in stride and he had to ended up in a house in a hospital or whatever. So but then it almost looks like he's like the more mature one. It's like I'm having a problem, I'm addressing the problem, I need to go to the hospital, I'll, I'll go to the hospital, right? But then he like Dignan looks like he needs to um, help him, even though I think it, the other one, like Anthony, actually looks like he thinks like, oh, I need to help Dignan because like if I don't take care of Dignan, no one will because no one, no one really likes him. So and he's not yeah. mature enough to take care of himself. Yeah, and, yeah, and, and I think and, that's and something. And he also about- just likes. He also wants to entertain his fantasies still. Yeah, but I think he does it. He entertains them for a reason, right? Yeah, because that's all he has. <laughs> yes, like, like he shows him like the guy has a seventy-five year year plan for them. <laughs> so this is what we're gonna do tomorrow. This is next week, five twenty-five, seventy-five years. Like what? <laughs> and it's and it's so great. And and someone with with that level of of planning, but they're not they're so not grounded. And and people ultimately sort of shrug them off and don't take them seriously. He really, I find this another fascinating character piece. He wants to be the leader, but there's nothing natural about, he's just not a natural leader. There's nothing natural about him being the leader of any group because he doesn't really inspire connection. But Anthony does, the Luke Wilson character totally does. Everyone gravitates towards him because he cares and he has empathy and, you know, he, you know, he's there for everyone when, when they need them. And that that's sort of another interesting piece. And 
yeah, I, and again, it's another special reason why I was like gravitating towards the Anthony character in in this is that he's sort of the glue that he's a very special type of person that holds other types of groups together. And uh, you need the Anthony's of the world to offset and to take care of and help the Bob's and the, the Dignans. It's fascinating really. So if you were to, because I think you, Randy, you mentioned this at the, at the top of the episode, right? Like when we were talking about our initial impressions, how this is something that you could project yourself onto as in like, because okay, so these are young adults entering adulthood. And is this an allegory, a functional allegory for you? As in like, is Anthony some kind of a reflection of a young man entering the, like, I don't know. Or, or is Dignan sort of like the slacker or is, is, is there something more in there or is this just superficial? Well, for me, I think you come to a point in uh, adulthood where you're clearly firmly rooted in adulthood and you have to accept that. And how are, how are you going to, you know, go about your business and go about your life? What's going to inspire you? What are you going to be drawn to? And for some people, you know, you well, am I going to, get a get a job because I can get this job now or am I going to pursue a passion like I'm going to become an artist you know and choose I'm going to be an actor something that's a really really difficult uh choice to make because it's a really really tough career to get into um you know to pay the bills or are you just going to take that job because it's there and it's sort of a weird difficult choice that you know you might have to make and Dignan is the guy that says screw it. I'm going to accept the consequences. If I don't make any money, if I get into trouble or whatever, I'm going to follow my life's passion. I'm going to be an artist. You know, like that's his, he wants to be in a life of crime. He wants, <laughs> I don't think bizarre. he even knows there are consequences. I think this is one, of, he's one of those guys. He's just like, the, what do you mean I have following? to pay rent? <laughs> yeah. And yeah, and it might not be a choice. It might be, he's just wired to pursue life's passion for, Anthony, you know, you get to a certain point, well, I think I've fallen in love and I'm going to follow my heart. And that ends up being the big central piece that guides your choices during those years. And even Bob, I I see in Bob as the guy who just perennially has family issues and he's sort of tethered to commitments at home and his family wants him to do this and he has to get his brother out of prison that. And, you know, it's so... And some people that, well, you know, I had my fun in university and now I got to go do the family business, you know, like Prince William. <laughs> and that's what a great example. <laughs> I, yeah, I had my fun. I learned how to fly helicopters and well, off to the family business. <laughs> so, say, but that's a reality. Didn't right? go like with Harry's just like learn, had my fun, learned how to fly a helicopter, shot a bunch of Iraqis, went back home. Would Nazi uniform. At a party. Wear a Nazi <laughs> uniform to a party. That, yeah, that was... These are dignant. What a He's, lad. <laughs> Imagine if he did that dignant. today. He's just doing it, man. He's just doing it. Or maybe he's our, he's our Anthony and he found love I mean, and he's following let's be his honest, heart. Harry wishes he was dignant, okay? <laughs> Fair enough. He's our Anthony. He's just... He found love and now it's all about his love. <laughs> he looks uh, like a banana. <laughs> but I think that these are realities, you know, for... 20 something dudes, you know, and women to a certain extent, although probably women don't fantasize so much about lives of crime. But uh, anyway, like uh, that's, I, I do widows? see that in here. <laughs> <laughs> or is it the kitchen? <laughs> so, yeah, to me, I totally have this take on it. It totally works for me and it, it enriched this watching. Mm-hmm. 
How does the uh, James Khan come into this picture? Because I don't know at this point. I don't even know what what his character is supposed to do in there. I think he's just there. He's just happy he's the to one. Be there. He's the one who sets up the heist for them. Oh, is he actually setting up the heist? Because I was just like, why is he like what? Because he's just oh, I have met met this Mister Henry guy. He's just like, what is his deal? He's he's the one who t- kind of sets it up for them. Yeah, and he's the reminder that real life is is hard anyway, and is going to screw you over. Life sucks, kids. There's a there's some kind of a life lesson, but then at least in 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 this sort of the dynamic between Anthony and and Dignan, I kind of I can still I'm gonna I'm gonna stick to my guns and see Luke Wilson as sort of like the young Jack Nicholson, like five easy pieces. Like he's this sort of kind of guy who's like following his passion because, like you know, although to an extent because he's almost like I don't know humoring his his friend, right? Well, well, fine. Well, I'm gonna, I think, I'm gonna pretend I'm gonna break I mean, out from this hospital, even though I can walk out of the front door, right? I mean, I, I, I think it's probably just a metaphor for Owen and Wes's life at that point. You think? How come? Because that's that's that's, that's kind of who they were at that point. They were trying to follow their passion, and they weren't quite sure. They were from, you know, Houston, I believe. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. And they didn't have like some huge amount of connections, and they kind of lucked out with this short that played Sundance, and James Albrooks. Someone got James Albrooks to see it, and back in the days when you would get like a five million dollar contract at the studio, it's okay. I think that they at the at the time too, like that you know they had this interest and they wanted to get into film and and try and try, you know, try their try their hand at, at making films. And that's what the bottle rocket short was. And, you know, they're, at, they're at exactly this point in, in their lives that, you know, do we pursue this? They are, they Dignans or are they going to be Anthony's? And I mean, you know, and, like, the, and Owen Wilson after it came out was almost joined the Marines. Because, well, because the movie failed. Yeah. Yeah. So follow up question. You know, and he's, he's trying to scam the, you know, the, the overage in the, the coach ticket versus the first class ticket. Like this is where yeah. they were, you know, like, I mean, like, I'm pretty sure they were skint, right? Like, I think that's the word I want to use. They, they weren't exactly rich or were they? I mean, or are I they? think they were low, lower middle class. I think West was probably slightly right. better off than Owen, I would imagine. So here's a question, like to humor this, right? Like, okay. Well, I mean, if, I mean, if I mean University kind of Texas is a pretty easy ish school to get into it's not like an ivy league school or anything it's a pretty general good college but not like the most amazing college on the planet all right so okay it starts making more sense to me but i'm just humoring this sort of uh, interpretation do you think there is you can map map these two onto these characters as in like do you see wes anderson being more like dignan or do yes. you see I mean, uh, owen wilson mm-hmm. being more like anthony even though he's playing the other character i think that is very much the case yes and i think quite possibly um they have things tugging on them to you know oh you know your family wants you to do this and if everything falls through you can come home and you know, work at dad's shop. Uh, you know, I think there's probably that type of, uh, you know, family pull as well, which is the Bob character. I, I think it's all probably in here. It's fairly you know, organic. I, I, I know Matt Fisher is very much Wes at that age. <laughs> and he's, yeah. and he's, he's openly said that it's not like it's some secret, but he's, and everyone said that is very much who Wes was to some extent. Probably a slightly I mean, nicer uh, person. Not but, surprised. <laughs> With his beret and everything, but then 
Because I think he was a, he was more of a scarf guy, but I think. <laughs> but oh, I'm, I'm, I'm pretty say, sure I've seen him in a beret or two over the years. I mean, you wouldn't be surprised either, right? But I'm just thinking now, if this is, imagine this, because we talked about this sort of Owen Wilson and Wes Anderson partnership coming to an end, late, like right after Royal Tenenbaums, and then well, he, like my sort well, of, Owen's, yeah, Owen's a second lead in Life Aquatic. Yeah, but then like it, he's not. Uh, screen screenwriter. Well, he's right, not. He's the, not credited. Film, I'm, right? I'm sure he wrote some lines in it. I'm sure he just was like whatever about credit. Yeah, but then I, I feel as this as these two, for lack of a better word, I think they grow apart or they just pursue different things in life. Because I think Owen Wilson kind of got a bit more invested in his acting career later on, right? So I, mm-hmm. I don't know. I don't know what what the deal is. I, I was just trying to kind of map my own sort of interpretation of if this is if bottle rocket is a reflection of reality in in that dignan is wes anderson and anthony is owen wilson right in that anthony's humoring dignan but in a way he's also keeping him safe because it, mm-hmm. because the minute he leaves him alone it's just because i need to go back and do this and it's him he gets arrested he goes to prison immediately and then he just happily makes belt buckles right for everyone <laughs> uh, send them to Mr. Henry I know he's probably anyway, but then I'm just wondering is this also like okay if Owen Wilson steps away from from Wes Anderson he figuratively goes immediately just goes to prison as in he just Im- immediately gets consumed by, by his own sort of untamed sort of passions that you know, he he almost needs needs to serve the lightning rod he needs to serve this other guy to kind of just keep him grounded right i don't quite see it as that because here i don't think prison as an outcome for for dignan is that bad of a thing because he's he's grounded <laughs> because in his mind in his life's view he's made it he can now identify as being a criminal because this this is um you know this this proves it this is his credential this is his cv that he did time for this this job so this this is his resume now and uh you know so in a way wes anderson with you know like he goes on and so his prison is actually making his next film and his next film and you know becoming a filmmaker and telling his stories like he's made it you know, he identifies now as what he set out to do, and that's being a filmmaker and storyteller. So it's I prison, think- the studio filmmaking, because it's it, you know, like you have to follow rules. You have to, you know, like you can't go to the bathroom whenever you please. Like there's but a time I, and place to do this. I, I, <laughs> but he's happy within it. He's happy within I, I, that I world. I'm not quite sure if he counts as a studio. I think he's technically an independent still because he has he uses his own production company, and his films are, are under. Mm. A certain amount. I mean, it's always astonishing mm-hmm. to see how low his budgets are compared to mm-hmm. most filmmakers. Because, like, French Dispatch cost mm. twenty million, which is insane when you think about it. When you think about how what it looks like, and I mean, yeah. I suppose maybe he's figured out. Well, everyone works um, for nothing. Yeah. That's the thing. All the, all the actors. <laughs> he's very. Really... I mean, but now it's easy because everyone works oh, for yeah, nothing. Yeah, yeah, but, yeah. but then again, like some some people kind of owe him favors. I don't know if he has some like secret footage of Bill Murray engaging in golden shower sessions or something. I don't know. 
like you know like the trump files i don't know but or is this just people work with him because he's wes anderson so they just work for the cv credit almost right well i mean he's he's a good screenwriter it's a good film you're gonna you may get some award nominations you know it's you know it's a it's probably a really fun set to be on i can't imagine it's a horrendous i don't think he's like a huge dictator by any stretch yeah, the interesting casting choices to know where they would come from, like earlier on, would be Gene Hackman or Angelica Houston. She's sort of one of the other classic names, right? If I'm remembering correctly from Tenenbaums. Mm-hmm. Why do they hop on to this guy's third film? Like they, they must see something in him and as an auteur. And I think that Hackman won awards for that too. So, and, you know, kudos for a young director. That was the only know, bad experience he ever had, though, with Wes Anderson was was with hackman they did not get on <laughs> they, they really yeah. they they were like at each other's throat the whole time i'm just by the way i'm just looking at budgets for these things his biggest some budget of, his, some of them are quite expensive the, the, like the big, life aquatic was 50 mil that was his biggest budget by far is, is that i believe but uh i think hold on let me just let me check just in case like something like um Fantastic Mr. Fox may have been more expensive. I think it's about 30, 35 maybe. 40, sorry. Uh, let's just quickly check Moonrise 16. Moonrise cheap. Yeah. Okay, now. So the two leads are unknowns. Yeah. Isle of Dogs, I don't know, at least based on Wikipedia, because you can't Probably say. 30, 40-ish. Animation's a little more expensive. Mm. Yeah. Grand Budapest 25. So, I suppose that yeah, it's it's one of those that you, you can't do it like Cassavetti style. It's just like I'm gonna do it myself because it's still twenty five million dollars, right? Yeah, but I mean, but his, I his film kind of... his films have been you know almost always make a profit. Even like mm-hmm. French Dispatched and COVID was a moderate box office success. Mm-hmm. And you know, at twenty twenty five million dollars, that's that's a palatable fee for a streamer if a, if a film went straight to streaming that's a reasonable price mm-hmm. that's that's cheap for most streamers that's cheap for netflix yeah but then it kind of comes in exchange as in like well yeah it's a it's a cheap film to make for 25 million dollars and you get this of the laundry list of stars that will be because you'll get kate blanchett you get bill murray you get timothy Charlemagne, you get all like you, you get this sort of the the cream of the so sort of the current zeitgeist is going to be there right it's almost like the allure of the film. It's just like you're gonna go go and see all the stars playing all the weird roles, because you'll get to see Edward Norton playing some some character that you'd never see him in. Because for them, it's almost like a personal acting challenge. It's almost like a like like a bit of a vacation, right? Because mm. I'm not sure how much time they spend on set when when he makes movies. No idea whether this is a big commitment. But it kind of feels like this is a like he almost kind of just does it. Uh, just be, like, it, it, like he knows these are events, so so to speak. And then uh, on the back of it, you kind of look at like these are events now, uh, and just it, it's kind of fun to look at where where it, where it kind of all began. Like this, this is what I'm trying to say. Mm-hmm. Yeah, just just with these like three dudes coming together, it's just let's make a movie together. And, oh, let's get my, my let's get my other brother involved as well, right? You know, like oh, let's get this guy because he has a car or whatever like these are the sort of considerations that they had in mind you know it's just fascinating to me in a way 
have a feeling I'm running out of gas. <laughs> <laughs> so, I don't know, is there something, so, <clears throat> Randy, is there something that you, have, you need to kind of get off your chest as well? No, I, I don't think so. I think we sort of uh, covered it, you know, wanted to talk about the the humor and the, 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 the backdrop of this and also maybe what, what's Owen Wilson's uh, relationship writing-wise to uh, Wes Anderson's career. And I think we've, we've covered that. So uh, those are the talking points I had sort of on the side. Cool. Might as well just do a round of final takes, give this movie a star rating, and then peace out. How about that? Let's do it. So, Ian... Final take, a star rating. Uh, I mean, I would say it's a you know it's a very solid debut. Uh, you know, even though he doesn't quite know what he's doing, but that's a lot of the charm of it. As you know, same with the characters, they don't know what they're doing, so it kind of reflects the story in a way. Uh, and uh, you know, the cast is, is really good. Is you know, with what he has, he's been able, he's able to get some really fun performances. Um, probably give it four out of five. I would say, you know, I just definitely West films I, I like more and ones a couple I like less, but I think, Do- awesome. I think Darjeeling Limited is by far his worst film. Do you know what the Darjeeling is the one I still have not seen? I promised myself I'd, I wanted to see it this week. I didn't find the time because that's the one I still have not seen. It's his weakest film. It's got some good stuff, but it's his weakest film. Oh, we, we should mention that. And, and it has some great music, of course. Yeah, some, exactly. Some, 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 and also, you know, it also marks the beginning of his collaboration with Mark Mosbaugh from Devo, being his composer on most of his films until mm-hmm. I believe Grand Budapest is when Alexander Desplat has replaced him. And the cinematographer, um, what's his name? Well, Robert Yeoman. Who, who I think he got because of Drugstore Cowboy. I think you're right. Yeah, because that, that was probably the most notable film he had shot up to that point. And he was probably mm-hmm. cheap, you know, and he's good. So, I wonder if the, if he was kind of sort of if uh, if he got involved in this with the uh, the studio and James L. Brooks connection as well. And there as well, just like, there's there's some I'm, kind I'm, of I'm, cool... I'm sure there was a list of cinematographers that he was kind of given. At yeah, any part. and he goes like, "Oh, can we get this guy, please?" Yeah, like, I like drugs <laughs> to a cowboy, and I'm sure he's probably I can't think yeah. what else he had done up to that point. I'm sure he'd done a couple other good movies, but oh, he got. Um, hold on. Well, he did to live and die in LA before. Oh yeah, he would. He would. Well, I know he's a big freaking oh, nice. fan. So, uh, after Drugstore Cowboy, The Wizard, Too Much Sun, Kid, um, b- b- the Linguinians, and Too Much Sun. Is, is that the Robert Downey Senior film? Too much. Yes, I'm sure um, he's a Downey Senior fan. So, Cold Blooded, Somebody to Love. Oh, that's the Alexander Rockwell film. Yes. Um, yeah. So I don't know, and I think they they keep working together to I, this I, day. I believe he shot every single one of the films. I think so. Yeah. So you know, and also great so, great use of of some tracks from Love, who, who who even at that point I don't think were as well known as they are now. Who were a great sixties band, and then picking mm-hmm. a song from like the best but most sort of underrated Rolling Stones album. They said, "Here, mm-hmm. now request was only very hit people like." Yeah, he did. He, apparently, he didn't. He didn't have a Bob Dylan song he wanted to use for this, but they, they didn't. Uh, he couldn't get the rights for it, but he eventually got the rights for the Royal Tenenbaums. So kind of happy. Fits with the '90s because, like '90s, was all about curated soundtracks as well. I think mm-hmm. Bottle Rocket kind of fits in that as well, and I think his whole filmography kind of fits in that. He just enjoys 
curating music for this for this stuff. Anyway, Randy, what is your take on five stars? Yeah, this is this is a gem. I'm so happy with this this rewatch. I haven't seen it in over a decade, and I'm so glad that not only does it hold up, there's a sort of another layer that I didn't really think about before. This whole coming of age and what do you do, you know, post school when you know you're a grounded adult and what are you going to do with your life? That's here. It's here in spades. It's it's a really nice relationship between the three central characters, you know, the Luke Wilson and Owen Wilson characters in particular, but you know, Bob's a great piece as well. Yeah, this this film is awesome. Love this film. Fantastic. I will say I really enjoyed this movie. I watched it twice eventually anyway, so I, I, I keep vibing with this. Fantastic. Really like it. However, I'll probably say, like, because like, I'm trying to contextualize when, within the, sort of the span of this man's entire filmography, so I'll probably say four and a half is probably going to be where I'm going to go with it. Just, But it, it's still right close to the top of the heap for me when it comes to Wes Anderson. Really enjoy this movie. And I really, 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 really enjoy the fact that this comedy is always kind of slightly under the surface in there fascinating mm-hmm. stuff for me anyway so that's what i'm saying four and a half out of five that's what i'm gonna say so top threes still have some top three moments from bottle rocket ian go first uh i would say that some of the most of the music uh, this music keys i think are really well done but that's kind of typical with wes uh and the, the whole mask and the heist bit is great and also there's, there's a couple really good long takes when they're chasing him at the high uh, after he's been caught it's really impressive bits of filmmaking it's my top three top of my head oh on this I, f- I totally failed to mention the camera work because like nowadays he's very sort of controlled like everything's on mm-hmm. tripods everything's very sort of motion controlled there's quite a lot of handheld stuff in here yeah yeah this is probably by virtue of necessity and budget and location and yeah I'm, I'm, sure, thing, I'm sure but... it was pretty fly on the wall shooting for the most part mm-hmm it makes you wonder, like, I want to live in an university where he didn't know what a tripod was when someone showed him that you could actually lock a camera away. He was just like, this is fucking amazing. <laughs> I, don't have to, I don't have to carry this thing everywhere. <laughs> uh, right. Randy. Awesome. Okay. Give us your tops. A couple honorable mentions. Uh, and I'll start with Dignan's line. Bob's gone, man. He left. He stole his car. <laughs> Great, Great line. <laughs> Just great. Um, we mentioned this, but another honorable honorable mention to the bookstore robbery. Um, let's get your money, put it in a bag. Don't have a big bag, so let's put it in a bunch of little bags. And then Anthony shows <laughs> but, up. But also oh, the thing, a lot, uh, also, there's I'm, a lot of little bags here. I'm pretty sure there's some big bags behind him if you look closely. <laughs> <laughs> that would just be that much better. That's the best. Number three, I love this. Love this, and I actually use this in part as a, a, a joke in some of the seminars that I do. Um, but Dignan's signal when he needs help. Oh, where's my cock going? Bang, fuck him dead. Where's my drop? I need him. You need it. Delicious. So anyway, to, to my account, he uses it in the opening hospital escape um, the library, and then he uses it when he's getting beaten up in the bar. He's calling for help, and uh, <laughs> uh, Luke Wilson's outside. Anyway, number two, I really like this moment um, where Anthony says to Dignan, her name's Inez, and Dignan responds, and my name's Dignan, man. 
I really like that because I think a lot of what Dignan's about is just finding his own identity and 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 just being that thing that he wants to be. So just putting a stamp on it and saying, my name is Dignan, just to identify himself. I think that that's actually intentional. And I think that that actually has that meaning and it's really nice. And it's a great argument they're having to. No one's at fault. You know, Anthony just wants love and Dignan just wants to make a name for himself. And it's just, it's just a sort of a sweet moment. Um, but number one has got to be in the robbery at the end, the cold storage, the places they rob, right? Like a cold storage place, you know, <laughs> Anthony's mom's house. Aren't you not supposed to be out store. for lunch? No. <laughs> no, not always. Yes, always. No, no, not, not always. But anyway, in this robbery scene, when things are going off the rails, Dignan just pulls out a smoke bomb and slams it down on the ground and no one knows what the hell to do. <laughs> It's just beautiful chaos and it's driven by the characters not knowing what's going on and just acting naturally within the characters themselves. It's just fantastic, hilarious, chaos and character grounded. It's just wonderful. Yeah, what about you? Oh wow. What do I what do I go with? Um oh, let's just go ahead and honorable mention. Grace, what did she accomplish in her life? <laughs> eight-year-old awesome. i mean there's another little subtle scene where, where it speaks to this woman and like while in the in the back there's another sort of top three moment for me but then um he goes like oh i, I was her sorority sister it's like oh, i didn't know she had a sister <laughs> <laughs> what, a, what a guy um okay so one one <laughs> just look, just look, Wilson hanging out while while Inez is cleaning rooms. It's just a, a, a headspace I want to be in. And by the way, I'm just like I'm listening to you talk about like Dignan just finding himself. I'm just wondering, <clears throat> is when that Wes Anderson is this sort of like a drama kid? Like he's all in, you know, oh, you know, it's very, <clears throat> and then he has this one friend who just hangs out with him because otherwise he will, no one would hang out with him because everyone would think he's weird. Yes. Yes, yes, yes. Dignan's that guy. Yes. So Dignan's, yeah, this is perf- perfect. So that's one. Uh, Bob gets beaten over a leaf in the pool. <laughs> <laughs> <It's> just, <laughs> um, I, I slashed it with the uh, like the, the, the slur of this. Like he, he shows up in the sort of like the yellow uniform and he goes like, "You look like a banana." What's <laughs> wrong with you? <laughs> and um, the best moment in the film, though, <clears throat> is a really tender scene where Luke Wilson Anthony is trying to speak to Inez, but he doesn't speak Spanish, so they hire this another guy and he translates between Spanish and English, like, it's, <laughs> yeah. like as they're just like professing love to another. And he just casually just goes like he speaks Spanish this way and then English that way. So such a great scene. I really That's like a great it. scene. Yeah, and he has that great moment. Like she says you're trash. And <laughs> quizzical quizzical look. You know, like like paper, litter, just sort of passing through it sounds better in Spanish. <laughs> it's great. Ah, such a great scene. Now, also, is it, is it his only Texas film? I believe, or is Rushmore technically set in Texas? I think Rushmore is a Texas film. I don't remember. Let's ask Chad GPT. Hold on. Was Rushmore film in Texas? 
find out soon enough. Oh, yeah, yes, it is. It was. No. Yeah. It was. It was. No. It was. This, no, hold on. Short location in and around Houston. <laughs> the, what a chat GPT is so amazing. No, Rushmore was not filmed in Texas. The film was primarily shot on location in and around Houston, Texas. <laughs> <laughs> and if I'm not mistaken, it was his school they shot at. Potentially. Some of the, the specific locations school used <clears throat> for filming include Grace. St. John's School, the Rice University campus, and the Houston Museum of Natural Science. I think the scene with Grace, which is shot outside of a school, that is a school like a junior high or something that uh, Owen Wilson was once kicked out of for, All right. bad, be- for bad behavior. There are apparently. also certain locations in California. So, yeah. They, they almost so, yeah, had, had, had Macaulay Culkin was considered for the role of Matt Fisher. <laughs> <laughs> I could yeah, almost yeah. see that at that point but it would not quite work in 1999 was he like high on crack then uh no he like stuff like saved around that a few years later i, I could and, right. and, and like um, um what was the good pa- son party monster oh right i could <laughs> yeah, i could too. i could just about see that but it would be a very different film <laughs> mean something uh and, that, where, where, where? and then Schwartzman was almost cast. It was cast as Donnie Darko originally. No, th- no, yeah, could possibly see, see it. That. Could see this. <clears throat> right, let's get on with the business. Bottoms. Bottoms. <clears throat> Ian. Uh, well, what I think of right now is um, after they rob the bookstore, when they're at the house, I noticed this, this. Uh, cop, uh, police car lights in the distance. Did any of you notice that? No, no. Was I was like, <laughs> that is bizarre. Like this made no a very strange little aspect to it. it was like, cause I hadn't seen it in a while. I was like, this fucking police car, police lights. It makes you wonder whether this is just like a random police car because they were shooting in the same house. I assume that must be it. But it's like, yeah, they, they're on the run, like. Can't they see this fucking police call lights there? <laughs> Might be a good idea to get the fuck out of there. Like now, up in West, would be like, oh, shot ruined. Do it again. Restage everything. And then he's just like, we don't have to film stock West. Like, we need to just keep moving. <laughs> Maybe it was part of Digman's 75 year plan anyway. Possibly. Could you, do you Johnny think Wes Ball. Anderson has a 75 year old plan, year plan? Oh, yeah. Oh, yeah. <laughs> Possibly, yeah. <laughs> oh, yeah. He turns them out fast enough. I think he's got his next quite a few films planned out. I'm so happy that I've that we, we've kind of come to this conclusion that you kind of let me kind of get this sort of just I, I don't know which one of you this was to kind of sell, sell me on this image of Dignan's Wes Anderson, but I'm loving this even more now. <laughs> this is great. I believe that was me. This is this is one of those sort of moments where things click, like when this one time. On, go on, join our Patreon to find out more. When you just said, said to me that Aaron Brockovich is Rocky, I'm like, this is this is, yeah, yes, <laughs> it is. I love it even more. Thanks. <laughs> uh, now, bottom moments. Let's do that. We have been. Is we that, have been. Who's been yeah, doing I, this? I only, no, Ian. You've been. You've yeah, been. You've been. You've done the that annoyed me. That was about it. I mean, I mean, I guess there's there's some 
you know, the, the, the plot itself is a bit of a mess and some of the filmmaking is not great, but, you know, hey, it's the guy's first film. and No, don't cut him any slack. Just, <laughs> Just go. Right. <clears throat> so, Randy, is it your turn then? Uh, yeah. Any more, Ian? You're good? And, and, and us, the, the, the Proclaimers song, does it really work at all? And it just it seems like that was thrown on. I just think that might hmm? was it his choice per se. Do you think he allowed yeah. anybody to make and uh, make a choice? And he's just like, fine, you can have your song. Or maybe this was like Owen's deal. It's like, fine, you get one song. And <laughs> 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 chooses the proclaimers. All right. Um, mm. For my bottom three, number three, James Caan throwing water on Dignan like it's the funniest thing ever. And he does it like three times, if not four. <laughs> Once or twice would have been plenty. Uh, number two, there's a shot that sort of feels out of place. Uh, it's during some transition music, so you know you can sort of get away with it. But the shot, I think it, it's following the country club scene where James Caan uh, bends Future Man's arm back and twists his arm. I think it's af- right after that. You have a quick shot of James Conn playing the piano at Bob's house. And I presume it's just in there to establish the fact that he knows Bob's house and then it'll play into the the ending, the reveal where Conn robs it clean. Um, mm-hmm. But anyway, it just sort of felt weird because uh, that's not where the next scene was. So just sort of an odd insert to me. And number one, James Conn's ponytail kimono. <laughs> what a bizarre choice i don't know if this was anderson's idea or if he told james Conn just come up with something on your own i thought it was more not, of like a charong sure. like kimono charong yeah i guess it's not a full kimono but anyway it's like it's, it's more so the ponytail that sort of is bizarre to me that he's got this weird little japanese ponytail do you think wes clip. anderson had enough clout to tell anybody to wear a kimono and a ponytail I'm pretty sure James Conn came with this. It's probably it's like, this is what I'm going to do, whether you like it or not. <laughs> and same with the karate thing. And I think the, the gentleman that he's doing karate with is his co-star from The Killer Elite, which yes. is the James Conn ninja movie. It's, not, yep. it's, not, it's a cop movie. It's a cop movie. Oh, there's ninjas. I can't, it's been a while, but I don't remember ninjas in it. But. <laughs> yeah. yeah, you're but right. He does it is, sort of sort of the karate kid stance, the crane yeah. stance. Oh. Yep. It's great. Is that it? Yep. So let me continue with the uh, theme. James Kahn's necklace. Yeah. Oh, yes. This, yes. this crocodile dandy necklace. I had oh, yeah. that on my list. That, that, shark teeth or whatever yeah. the hell they that, are. That is clearly whatever. That was, that's clearly James Kahn's. That's like. Yeah. Like, what? <laughs> like, the fuck <laughs> is he wearing? Ah. <laughs> uh. I'm sure basically it was like, James Conn, bring your wackiest stuff you own to wear. I want to live in a universe where no one told him anything. This is how he turned up. And then they said, we're going to roll with this. And no, or it's like, James, can you please take... (laughs) No, he turned up with this necklace and they told him, James, can you take off the necklace? No, the necklace necklace is staying or I'm walking. (laughs) Probably. (laughs) Like I wonder if James Brooks is is partly responsible. He said, "It's this quirky little Texas comedy, so they'll need you. You're sort of the the recognizable name in here, and just you know do something quirky, make it your own, and then boom, 
Khan showed up with all this stuff and it was his idea probably to chuck the water off the roof. So uh, another one mentioned this already. James Khan's crane stands. Why? <laughs> why? Why? Oh, why? And then let's just say an honorable mention to James Khan la- just laughing maniacally when he goes like when this sort of real sort of suspenseful scene but he just laughs for like I want to say like three seconds too long in the guy's face I'm just like Jesus Damn, was this the same no this was two years after the shadow he could have been the shadow <laughs> <laughs> yeah um, and uh, you mentioned this James can clearly not playing the piano <laughs> just m- mashing keys <laughs> like this you know what it reminded me on of uh, Lance Henriksen not playing the piano in Hard Target. It's <laughs> <laughs> kind of the same vibe. And a special mention, because I have to mention this, because I don't understand why. Um, the Owen Wilson practicing Gunkata in slow motion. Like, what? Like, do we need to make this look like an indie film? Like, this is, again, like, I mean, this is like a genuine pet peeve, because, like, indie filmmakers, they will have this sort of, uh, I don't know. Something about just people practicing gunplay. Maybe this is just like, oh, we're making this in Texas. We kind of have to shoot something. I don't know. Or, and then the fireworks, whatever the hell. I don't know. But then, like, for me, that's just the bottom three is still James Gunn. Like, I don't know. It's like Marlon Brando on, on, the, on the set of Island of Dr. Moreau. Like, like <laughs> let, let him do his shit. Jesus. <laughs> <sighs> Before yeah. that, that's your list, is it, Jakob? Yeah, it is, yeah. One thing we didn't get to is uh, theories on the title. We'll throw that in. Better late than never. Oh. Because I have one. Mm-hmm. I, I feel that there are certain um, uh, segments of the, the community who don't really have anything to do, and they're sort of losers, and what they will do is they will just buy fireworks and blast firecrackers and this type of thing i think there's a whole culture of that in different uh, rural areas across north america and uh, i honestly wonder if bottle rocket is sort of a reference to sort of being lost and having nothing to do except just shoot fireworks that's sort of my take on the meaning of it because it works for me so i'm happy with that and do you have a take on this i would say that uh Owen Wilson's character is a bottle rocket. That, you know, if you, if you light him, he kind of blows up. Um, I'm gonna, I'm gonna, I'm gonna, I'm gonna see your uh, interpretation, uh, oh, 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 and I'm oh, gonna oh, raise you this. Oh, his imagination blows up. You could say. I feel a bottle rocket. Now, now having spent this nearly two hours conversing about this film, it makes sense to me because I, I was thinking like, why are, why is this film called Bottle Rocket? They don't even shoot bottle rockets in the film. They shoot different types of fireworks and they have sparklers. <clears throat> bottle Rocket is a firework that needs a bottle to, to shoot up into space. Otherwise, it's fucking useless. Anthony is a bottle. Dignan is a bottle rocket. Boom. No? That's not bad. Nice. I think collectively we nailed it. I think we nailed it. <laughs> With that, I close the proceedings. Ball Rocket, I think it's on Criterion Channel everywhere, right? HBO. Criterion H- HBO is in the States. Is it HBO? Boom. Because I think it, it's on Criterion anywhere. If you want to buy it on physical media, and you probably should, go and, go and procure the pr- Criterion. Yeah, all, all the West Criterion tr- uh, Blu-ray is pretty good. So Even the not so good I should shops. probably get on that and just get his stuff mm-hmm. on Criterion. 
they'll be on sale okay. soon enough. Because um, I, I should yeah I, I really need to because I, I have never seen his movies more than once with the exception of Grand Budapest Grand Budapest and this now. Grand, Grand Budapest uh, is one I didn't like the first time I liked it and it's now one of my favorites. So cool because I've seen it only once. Yeah, I just, think that yeah. I will commit to watching Wes Anderson's films over the course of this year if I can and uh, get to know the guy a little better. There you go. I'm uh, quite annoyed. I, I had plans. I have plans to see something else. The night Life Aquatic plays in the cinema here, doing like a little mini retrospective in Bradford of some of his films. Uh, do is there some kind of an anniversary? Because well, I think it well, was it was going on in my local Odeon. Well, I, I think basically that they're just reissuing some of them in some sort of art house cinemas for the for Asteroid City right. over the next two months. So you might be able to catch a couple. There you go. So, with that, go and check out um, Life Aquatic if you still can on the big screen. And then in the meantime, go and procure a bottle of rocket because it's amazing. <clears throat> and then imagine an Owen Wilson is Wes Anderson and then and then Luke Wilson is Owen Wilson. There you go. <laughs> um, no. Yes. Got it wrong. Anyway, with that, I'm rambling. Ian, where can we find you and your stuff online? Because I think we're finishing. Well, I'm on our, psych- Psychotronic Cinema, uh, my website, and I'm on Twitter under the same handle. And you can see me be a apocalyptic shitstorer as I'm. And with that as well, bears reminding because I think last time you were on, you were threatening that your uh, that your website's going to go defunct. I never said it was going to go defunct. I was, was just going to quit reviewing stuff. Uh, I'm kind of reviewing. Clearly, stuff. haven't quit. I've done a few. I mean, I'm not as active as I used to be, but also don't have anyone to write for besides my site at the moment. So, anyone wants to shoot me a message and pay me, it would be nice. There you go. So you know, you you kind of retired the way Steven Soderbergh retires every now and again. Just like I'm totally done, and it's just like, oh, and here's another movie I made in the meantime. Uh, well, I, yeah. well, Filmhouse has pissed me off, and they and they like they kicked me out of their Facebook group. So. Assholes. They are. They, they, were, they were really weird. They didn't like my reviews. So. I was doing really good work for them too. I got them like into John Waters, and they were like pissed off that like they were going to cut my review of my friend Dan Waters who wrote Batman Returns, and um, I took it to another place. So I also don't write for it anymore, but that's a different story. And that was more Amber Bookwall sort of decision. Hmm. And they're like, "Oh my God, you took a thing you were going to do for us to no place." The fact it was actually my site. It's not my site. D movies is not my site, and. Uh, it was like, well, it's with interview of my friend. First of all, I did not go through a fucking PR. It's my mate. <laughs> hmm. So no, it's, I don't. I'm not. Don't have to be that fucking loyal to you. You fucking scumbags. And there was like twenty year olds who were like editing my stuff. It's like fuck off. That's <laughs> <sighs> what, what happens. Anyway, so this is where you can find Ian. Go and find and follow and like and subscribe. Meanwhile, Randy, where can we find your shizzle? You can find me on Twitter at Randy Burrows. You can find me on Letterboxd at Bratch7 and on clapperltd.co.uk. Oh, yeah, I'm on, cool. I'm on Letterboxd too. Seconds 23. The, yeah, naturally, of course. It's mm. the world's, world's biggest fan of John Frankenheimer. We should have probably led with that, actually. Yeah. 
uh, actually, speaking of, you can also find me on 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 Letterbox, Jakub Flash on Letterbox. Talk about film on Twitter, flashonfilm.com, clapperltd.co.uk when I feel like it. Uh, and then you can follow the show at Uncut Gems Pod everywhere. UncutGemsPodcast.com is the website where you can go and browse our stuff. Patreon.com slash UncutGemsPod is where you go and find extra stuff. Ko-fi.com slash UncutGemsPod is where you can leave your stuff and give it to us. And uh, and you can also leave us a star rating and a review wherever you please. So do that. Uh, and then with that, we shall bid you good day and invite you to uh, come back next week because we will be talking about... I think it's Hudson Hawk. Mm-hmm. Yep. Think so. Stay tuned until then. Bye bye. Mm-hmm.